Hello, welcome to another episode of SG Explain. We are back in the house. Unfortunately, today Elliot is out sick, so I have my good friend Ben in the house. Hi, everyone. Yeah, hi, Ben. Ben, you and I actually know each other for a while now, and I've always wanted to do an episode like this with you. Uh, but before we before we jump into the episode, I wanted people to know one of the cool things that you are doing, which I think some of my listeners may be interested in, which is Kenobi. Right. Why don't you introduce yourself and what Kenobi is? Yeah, thanks, Rufik. It's really great to be on the show. Um, so a short kind of like brief summary of what Kenobi does. We are actually currently Asia's largest mentoring platform. And uh, so we started out mainly doing digital mentoring. And we expanded from Singapore to Indonesia to India. And our main thing that we do is to provide education, access, and networks for individuals who actually want to get ahead in their careers. So... We have three programs and you can join them. The first is uh, international tech uh, business development program that we've already did with like Singapore, Indonesia, and India. We're starting this entire thing in a week. So it's really exciting. Uh, we've got like mentors from Alibaba Cloud, from uh, SAP, and even from uh, ByteDance. In. So it's going to be really cool. And wow. then, yeah. And then second, third kind of like things we're doing. The second thing we're doing is a venture capital mentoring program. That's in the works. We will actually start this in Q4, but you can reserve a place. And then the third one that we're doing is that we're actually starting an investment banking curriculum. And we actually are doing this with other universities. So we have reached out to Tamasat and as well as the University of Indonesia and uh, in Prasayat Muya in Indonesia as well. So we're going to do quite a lot of interesting things. And I think you can just go to a website. It's just a simple link, bit.ly slash join dash kenobi and you can just find out more about that thanks so much Ruby. awesome yeah i've been watching this on the sidelines and i have to say i have a lot of respect for the stuff you're doing and i'm especially excited that now you're on this show today today we're going to be talking about a person very important to singapore's history and culture and you know the reason why we're even doing this show is because i've been watching the news online and there has been an ongoing conversation about some of the people that we put up on pedestals and memorialized in statues and especially in the west they've been tearing down some of these statues so there's been an ongoing conversation in singapore about whether the most famous man about singapore's founding sir stamford raffles should continue to be <laughs> on a statue yeah and i and i thought it's important for us to, to actually dig deeper and find out who he was you know whether this guy was actually a good guy or if he was a lot more complex than that. And, you know, Ben, do you have any connections with Raffles? Did you go to, like, any schools that were named Raffles or anything? Mm, no, I, I wasn't from Raffles. Um, I, I think the only person, yeah, my wife is from Raffles, so I, that's my only, probably only connection to Raffles currently. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, I went to Raffles, too, uh, for my junior college. <laughs> and, yeah, so so this is, it gets a bit personal. because Well, just very fortunate. This This gets very personal for me because if, if Raffles turns out to be an evil man, <laughs> a big part of my identity now comes into question. So before we jump in, I think it's important for us to to know where we got some of this info from. I've collated a lot of this from uh, public sources like National Library. Uh, there's some from British sources as well, so I thought it would be good to compare and contrast. Some from Southeast Asian sources, but a lot of it was actually influenced and a lot of our understanding. So what we read in our social studies textbook or what is really etched into the Singapore narrative, comes from the first biography of Raffles, and it's called The Life of Sir Stamford Raffles, written by this guy called Demetrius Bulger in 1897. And it was written during the heyday of the British Empire, and it was one of the first books to establish the trend of glorifying Raffles and actually disparaging other characters, including 
William Farquhar, who we'll talk about later. It's a very controversial story. So we were just talking about this earlier. You know, uh, how many of you actually know what Raffles full name is? And I, I'm pretty sure none of you would actually know it because, you know, we just know it as Stanford Raffles, right? Or like Sir Stanford Raffles. But his full name is actually Thomas Stanford Bingley Raffles. And we were just remarking to each other, you know, like, who knows that he has such an interesting name called Bingley inside. It's kind of cute, right? <laughs> yeah. You know who it reminds me of? Yeah. It reminds me of Chandler Bing from Friends. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, you can just tell your friends, like, do you really know what Raffles' real name is? I think that's a good pub trivia question. I agree. I agree. Yeah, totally. So this guy, uh, we all know him as Raffles. So he was born on 5th July, 1781. And, you know, like, most of us were born in, like, courts uh, in hospitals. But he was born on a ship called the Anne off the coast of Port Moran, Jamaica. So his parents, his parents were, one is a captain, Benjamin Raffles, and the other was Anne Raffles. And his father was actually a Yorkshire man who actually retired from the West Indies trade in the 1800s. And his family is not actually, you know, a rich one. Uh, didn't come from a conservative background. But it came from hardship. And what little money that the family had was to really send Raffles to boarding school. And Raffles owed much of the financial support, patronage, not to his parents, but to his wealthy uncle, Charles Heyman, who secured his entry into Mansion House boarding school. And going to his teenage years, at the age of 14 in 1795, Raffles started working as a clerk in London for this company that would shape his life forever. And we all know this as a British East India company, the trading company that shaped many of Britain's overseas conquests. And later on in his career, 1804, we see that Raffles now is a bright young boy who is ready to conquer the world. 23 years old, and he marries. He marries Olivia Miriam Devonish, a widow as 10 years his senior. And now we go to the interesting bits, where he comes to Southeast Asia. Because in 1805, he was sent to Prince of Wales Island in Malaya, and that started his long association with Southeast Asia. He started his post as Assistant Secretary under Honourable Philip Dundas, who is the new governor of Penang. And at this point of time, he was made acquaintance of Thomas Travers, who would accompany him for the next 20 years. Yeah, so these, these names become important later on as we start to follow his life. One of the key things to note is that, you know, the British East India Company is a big, big entity in this region at this point, uh, mostly in South Asia, actually, in India. I think that's where a lot of people know it. But, you know, if, if you don't know who the British East India Company is, one of my favorite references is actually to tell people to go watch Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> uh, <laughs> because, agree. yeah, because in Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, the British East India Company is, is very prominently the villain at least for the first movie, I think. And, and that's because they're trying to clamp down on pirates, but also because you know that they are ultimately there for the money. So they, they will primarily follow where the money goes. This whole privateer and pirateer kind of like thing in the past. Exactly. So there was there was this agreement in the region between the British and the Dutch. And these were the two main forces that were really occupying Southeast Asia and the Malayan region. By the early 1800s, the British had secured trading posts at Penang and Benkulen while the Dutch ruled Malacca, and as well as parts of Java. But what happened was that there was this treaty signed in 1788 called the Anglo-Dutch Treaty uh, of 1788, a uh, very straightforward name. <laughs> uh, and it yeah. basically said that if a war was to break out, then let's say the English were at risk of, of being invaded by the enemies, the Dutch could actually occupy the territories and kind of hold it in protection and vice versa. Right. Eventually, what happened was that the Kingdom of Holland was annexed by France during Napoleon's War. And so Raffles had to leave Malacca and this kind of moved him towards mounting 
a military expedition against the Dutch and French in Java, the Dutch East Indies. So there was a lot of drama happening in this place. The war was swiftly conducted against an army of mostly French constructs with little proper leadership. So all of this is happening in the region. It's really a very messy space. And then the British just took over Java in a total of 45 days. And Raffles was appointed the lieutenant governor of the Dutch East Indies. So this is really what brings Raffles to his rise to some sort of a significant power. He took his residence in this place called Buitenzog. And despite having a small subset of Britons as his senior staff, he actually kept many of the Dutch civil servants in the governmental structure. Again, really just to, to protect aspects of the treaty that they had signed. So, so Raffles was part of the British rule in Java, he, he did a lot of interesting things in the space. And the reason why we're, we're digging into this is because it, it points to some of the things that he's going to do later on in Singapore. Yeah. So first of all, he negotiated peace and mounted significant military expeditions against local Javanese princes to subjugate them to British rule. Yeah, this is already a sign of the kind of man he is, what he really thinks about local and native the indigenous people, right? Yeah, the indigenous groups, exactly. And so rather than treat them as sovereign occupants of the land, he sees them as obstacles. Most significant of these was the assault on Jogjakarta on 21 June 1812. And this was one of the most powerful indigenous polities in Java. But during this attack, Raffles and his troops badly damaged and looted this region. And, and he actually sees contents of the court archive and this was this event was unprecedented in Javanese history it was the first time an indigenous court had been taken by storm and the local aristocracy the local powers were humiliated all because Raffles was trying to consolidate power in this space another key example is when Raffles ordered an expedition to Palembang in Sumatra just to unseat the local sultan Mahmud Badaruddin II and to, and to seize the nearby Banka Island to set up a permanent British presence in the area. After hearing all of this, I, I'm starting to get a sense that this guy is like a proper colonialist in the full sense of the term, right? Because now we're starting to discover that colonialism was actually a very harmful and very destructive force in, in many developing areas. Agree, agree. This really, it, it kind of leaves a sick feeling in my stomach. Yeah. Actually, interestingly for this, right, in this period of time in uh, Majapahit and uh, Shrivijaya empires, you realize that uh, it's in the 1500s, 1600s, there was the golden age, there was the zenith. And it could be argued in some ways that if the zenith actually continued, we, we would not really see the British East India Company have such a foothold in, in Java and especially in Singapore. And you would find that like some examples, right? So we have the Chinese. So you have Kublai Khan at this period of time and he, in China, wanted to dominate the world. Quite similar to what we actually have today in today's policy. And Kublai Khan, he sent, you know, his entire, I think around 20,000, 30,000 troops to Java under the Yuan Dynasty. And what actually happened is that you have this guy called Radin Vijaya, who is the founder of the Majapahit Empire. He deceived them and used guerrilla tactics to actually defeat the Chinese. And never again did the Chinese actually attack Java. Wow. Yeah, so that was that was pretty interesting. And and that was where you can actually see a certain kind of similarity to what we actually, actually happening today in, in China and let's say Southeast Asia. China doesn't necessarily want to sort of like be involved and like um govern per se. And what what they actually did is that you know we had uh like Emerald Tsunghe where she came on board and like came to Singapore, Long Yaman, things like that. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah, and yeah. it was more not to subjugate the people, but it was to just tell them that hey, you know, I'm here for you. You just can treat with me. I take your camphor, your raisins, and then in exchange, I give you my silk, my porcelain. And so that was what actually happened, similar to what you have today. If it was the case that there was a zenith 
And it was a case that even if, like, let's say the Chinese actually really took over, probably you will not see the British East India Company today. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. If, if people want to know more about some of the dynamics about power in this region, before Raffles came, we actually did an episode way back when in season one called Pre-Colonial History of Singapore. And, you know, some of the names that you mentioned, uh, actually, we talked about them. Yeah. So all these all these names are, are in that episode. I really enjoyed doing that episode a lot. When we think about timelines, right, the current timeline that we know is the one where the British really took a stronghold in Southeast Asia and especially in Singapore. But actually, that timeline was was only created because the British kind of interfered in an existing uh, development of local and regional power, right? They kind of came in, destroyed, looted, and they subjugated people, and then they took over. And so in some ways, there's a question of what are we actually celebrating or what are we actually memorializing Mm. when we do memorialize these groups? Are we memorializing the fact that they came and, and gave us modern facilities? You know, are we just overlooking the fact that they actually destroyed local and regional communities that, yeah. that are also very important to our identity. I think that's a very interesting question, actually. The the, the porting of culture, right? And, uh, you know, the, the idea of, like, the history being, like, his story, like, his his meaning, like, you know, the, the conqueror story. And, uh, like, who, who, like, what are we celebrating? Uh, are we celebrating things which uh, actually oppress us? Yeah, so let's tune back to Java and I will continue, you know, seeing a pattern of behavior here. So one thing that I actually did like about Raffles, and I say this with complete objectivity, is that Raffles, in the spaces that he was in, hated the slave trade. And so uh, he did this in multiple places, but uh, in Java, during his lieutenant governorship, he played restrictions on the local slave trade in line with wider British policy across its Asian territories. And this was despite the fact that slavery remained widespread and was actually something that some local governors actually continued profiteering off of. Uh, He said, no, we're going to stop it. And he did that in Java. He also attempted replacement of the Dutch system of forced agricultural deliveries. He preferred to have a sort of pseudo-capitalist system where it was a cash-based land tenure system of land management. And one of the other things that he did, which, you know, I'm not sure should be celebrated, this is a very colonial thing to do, is to catalog and and really collect ancient monuments. So he took all of these monuments that were in Java and he cataloged them. Later on, he also, in 1817, wrote and published The History of Java, which was one of the first English-speaking and, like, widely read books about the region covering geography, flora, and fauna. There is one story, and I'm not sure if you've heard this story before, Ben, uh, that that really shocked me. So this came from this academic called Syed Hussein Alatas, and he wrote this book called Raffles, Schemer or Reformer. (laughs) So you already know from the title that there's uh, (laughs) there's an angle here. Yeah, Uh, yeah, there is. Yeah, and he basically said in his book, and so it's important to note that this is not a British book, so he has no agenda to elevate or celebrate the British Empire. And he was basically saying, actually, Raffles' rule over Java was marked by conflict and poor financial performance. Wow. And there was this very iconic scandal called Banjar Masin Outrage, where Raffles kidnapped women and forced them into sexual servitude. So he had he had a friend called Alexander Hare, who was the governor 
of Panchamasin, which is now Borneo, by the way. Uh, and he wanted Alexander Hare to really help create Banjamasin into a profitable British outpost. He knew that Alexander Hare also had one downside, which was that he was a womanizer and he needed a harem of women to have sex with. Wow. And so, yeah. And so Alexander <laughs> very much in the spirit of just the sickening pervert, I guess. That's the only word I can think of it. He wanted to take advantage of local Malay women who did not have much power because of the British rule, right? Uh, and Raffles basically, as the governor of Java, transported 462 women to Borneo at his request, uh, some of which were convicts, uh, but a lot of which, 245 of them, were never sentenced for any crime. They Whoa. were kidnapped for bad conduct, you know, quote-unquote bad conduct, and moved to Borneo. And so this is this is the kind of stuff that Raffles kind of was okay with to allow his outposts, everything under his power to actually thrive and to give, him a, give himself a good name. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I hear the story yeah. about slavery on one hand, yeah. and then I hear this story and I'm, and I'm so conflicted. <laughs> I really don't know what to think. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think that like it's it's just the complexity of human character in some ways. You know, like like to a certain extent, I feel that we're all hypocrites in some ways, right? Like the best of men, even like people like we're, Raffles. We're imperfect, yeah. Yeah, yeah imperfect. And I, on, on this note, I, I'm not trying to defend Raffles, but then you have like conquests even back in the days where uh, like Assyrian Empire, um, even to uh, the Roman Empire, the Greek Empire, where they all had all these comfort women or comfort men, uh, some of them, you know, like they're celebrated in the Greek culture as well. Where, where, where gay, uh, like homosexuality was celebrated in Greek culture and was accepted then, right? They have, they have comfort men as well and during those times for, for men of war. And even back into just very recent times, during World War II and even like during the Vietnam War, you have all these other like um, things that were created and sort of legislated by the army, legislated by the powers that be to have all these women to like, you know, be the comfort in, in this way. So I, I, I'm not too sure whether, you know, it's that Raffles actually truly agreed with this. You know, probably it doesn't speak to his character in a way, but he probably just saw it as a necessary evil. I'm going to now jump to the part about Singapore. There was a couple of things that happened in between Java to Singapore. So I'll do a very quick summary. A lot of these things, if you want to know more, go online and read. There's a lot of cool stuff. So one of the key things that happened was that his wife, Olivia, unfortunately died on 26 November 1814. And this was in Java, this devastated Raffles. In 1815, he left for England because the Dutch took over. Uh, And remember how we were talking about this arrangement under the Anglo-Dutch Treaty? The Dutch had been able to restore some power back to themselves. They took back Java and Raffles was removed from his post. So he was officially replaced by this man called John Fendel. And they again, they attributed this to poor financial performance. So this is another corroboration point to you know the story that was told by Said Hussein, the, the mm. non-British mm. writer. Uh, he sailed to England in early 1816 to clear his name about the fact that there was financial uh, impropriety and poor financial performance. So he wrote this book called The History of Java. We talked about that. And then later on, he actually married his second wife uh, in 1817. And the second wife's name was Sophia Hull. And the two of them, so Raffles and Sophia, set sail to Benkulan, which is now called Benkulu in Indonesia. And they took over the new post as Lieutenant Governor of Benkulan on 22nd March, 1818. So 
it, it took them almost a year, wow, to, to sail from from England to to Van Cullen. I guess that makes a lot of sense. I think what's important to note was that Van Cullen was considered a colonial backwater whose real only real export was pepper, and they had also experienced the murder of a previous resident, Thomas Parr. And so when they sent raffles to this place, they were kind of just saying, you know, get lost, <laughs> go where we don't want to send anyone else, but, you know, we don't like you, so we're going to send you here. And Raffles actually, this was where he set his base. He started doing similar reforms to what he did in Java, but this is also where he heard from William Farquhar, who was the British resident of Malacca. This is where Singapore starts coming into the picture. We actually have a new figure, or rather we have actually heard of it in this story already. But then there's something that I think everyone actually knows. Um, you know I, I taught in, uh, in, in the Greater Humanities and Social Sciences back when I was in Sota after my national service, actually. And this guy's name is extremely controversial because, you know, like his name is General Major William Farquhar, right? And then you have all these other, like, kids, you know, who are 13, 14 years old, like, using the F word, you know, things like oh, that. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, His name is, is, is unfortunate. Yeah, it's unfortunate. And, and like, you know, handling this amount of kids. And I, I think that that's something that cannot be shaken off of my mind. I don't know how many like of my students or real students will be hearing this, but you're clearly on 19 and 20s now. So <laughs> I, I think it's good memories. I, I just did a quick Google search. And Farqua is actually a Scottish name that mm. means beloved man. <laughs> wow <laughs> what a contrast and to what we actually tried to talk about him and joke about him when I was in secondary school right yeah. yeah so he was attempting to negotiate commercial treaties with local chiefs of the Rio archipelago and especially before Raffles' arrival and I think what, what we actually see this and compared to what Raffles actually has is that you know this guy seems to be a bit more uh, into negotiation Someone who has a mindset that, hey, you know, I'm not here just to have the idea of a conqueror. I'm here to think about win-win situations for both parties. And I think that, that from the start is, is very clear. And he was compelled to sign a treaty not with the official head of the Sultanate, but rather the Raja. He actually understood the, the, poli- the politics of, this, of the scene, right? You know, like who is really in charge. He respects the local powers that exist yeah agree yeah and this was a success and he reported to raffles and so we have raffles then sailing to malacca in late 1818 this was favored by him both through the readings of the malayan histories and by Farquhar's explorations today even in like um just by looking at the ports around us you know we are the second largest ex re-exporter of uh, refinery or oil, oil refineries Right, and we are in a really strategically advantageous position, similar as in the past. However, what we have in those times with Raffles is that he was actually ordered not to provoke the Dutch, and therefore the British government said that okay, don't don't set up things here. Right, he did a brief survey on the Caribbean Islands, so that was in twenty nine January eighteen nineteen, and then he established a post at the southern tip of the Malay Peninsula, and it was there that he was established that you know there was no Dutch presence here on the island of Singapore, and Johor also had no longer had any control of this area. And so they made contact with the Temenggong, Abdul Rahman. And I think that for Singaporeans, this is a familiar name. He learned this in like second history, right? Yeah. And so when he was there, the context was friendly. And Raffles knowledgeable about the model political situation took advantage of this rudimentary treaty between the nominal chiefs. And they called for exclusivity of trade and the British protection of the area. And so we had like Raffles' party surveying the island, proceeding to request the presence of the Sultan to sign the formal treaty. And, and Major Farquhar was ordered to do the same back there in Riau as well. And then a few days later, we find that the former treaty was signed by a man who claimed to be you know, the law, lawful sovereign of the whole of territories extending from Linga and Johor to Mount Bois. And interestingly, this man, this man here, is Hussein Shah. So although this guy has no, no previous contact with the British, and 
he, he was, he actually certainly heard of the might of British Navy, heard of the British East Indian Company and knew that he was not in a position to argue against any terms. And we also see that Raffles was able to charm this man and reassure him that, you know, the Dutch will pose no threat in this area and I'll, I'll take care of you. And so Hussein Shah had been the Crown Prince of Johor. And but while he's away and bound to get married, his father died and his younger brother was mid-Sultan. And then this is where, you know, the whole political situation actually occurred because he was not the Sultan. But then he is the rightful Crown Prince. His younger brother was actually made Sultan, supported by the Dutch. And so to circumvent this entire issue, we actually see this play in power between the British and Dutch, where Raffles decided to recognize on behalf of the British crown, Hussein Shah is the rightful ruler of Johor. Yeah, this is this is a very foundational moment in Singapore's history that I never learned in secondary school. And I guess maybe it's because it's so complex <laughs> for us to learn in secondary school. But it's important that actually Johor was theoretically under the realm of influence of the Dutch. And so the Dutch were saying, we have a relationship with the, the younger brother who was made the Sultan. And so therefore, any kind of agreement made between Raffles and the Temenggong or with uh, Hussein Shah is actually not legitimate because they weren't making it with the actual person in power. Whereas Raffles was saying, well, you know, all that is moot because your Sultan isn't even the real Sultan. I made the deal with the legitimate crown prince. And so this is this is the beginning of very, very severe tensions that will later on lead to the need for another Anglo-Dutch treaty that we'll talk about later. Raffles actually declared the foundation of what was become modern Singapore in 6 February. So he secured the transfer of control of the island to the East India Company. And this, this uh, official treaty was read aloud in languages I think representing all nations present as well as a million Chinese inhabitants. And I thought that was, that was pretty smart, you know, like, like things we, this, all these small nuances that we learn in Singapore history that uh, sort of shape how we are as a nation today. Multiracialism, that was present right from the start of Singapore's history. We then have like Sultan being paid around 5,000 Spanish dollars a year and Temenggong Abdul Rahman received around 3,000. And those, these were actually massive sums at the point of time. It's equivalent to around 287,000 sterling and 172,000 sterling today. Pretty amazing sums for, for just like, you know, being there and being in control. And Falco yeah. was then officially named the resident of Singapore and Raffles was named as, uh, quote unquote, you know, agent to the most noble, the governor general of the state of uh, Riau, Lincoln and Johor. We actually find that, uh, Despite the fact that, you know, this ownership of the post uh, is exclusive British in Johor, the ex explicit orders are given to Farquhar to maintain free passage of ships and in, along the streets of Singapore. And after issuing these orders to Farquhar, we've realized that Raffles kind of left the next day in, in 7, 7 February 1819. And this is where things get interesting, right? Benjamin tried to persuade Farquhar to leave at once. He refused to abandon Singapore because Farquhar knew that this was British Britain's last chance to actually obtain a new base in the region. They actually regretted signing the treaty, Sultan Hussein in Domengong. And he wrote to Sultan Abdul Rahman and his viceroy. Yeah, he said that like, you know, we, please, we plead for forgiveness and we, they accused Raffles of having coerced them into signing it. And, but then you, you see Farquhar actually being the, this faithful guy. And this is where I think his character really shows. Like, you know, compared to the, the kind of complex character of, of Raffles, Farquhar's character is really steadfast. You know, he, he here, and he persuaded the nobles to retract the statements and do these early actions. The post actually remained in Britain, Britain's hands, at least even for the time being. There are two ways to view this, right? One is that Raffles was cunning. Uh, Raffles was very goal-driven and opportunistic, and he, he secured something for Britain. Uh, without which maybe Singapore as a modern entity would never exist in itself. But on the other hand, it 
also meant that he, you know, played local powers against each other in in a very deceptive way. And Farquhar really had to play the long game and, and protect things. And this really pissed both the British and the Dutch off, as you mentioned. And this actually led to the need to sign the Anglo-Dutch Treaty mm. of 1824. So in this treaty, I'll just give a, a very quick summary. The point of this treaty was to decide the fate of British and Dutch trading rights in British India, as well as the formerly Dutch possessions in the area around Calcutta and Batavia. The Dutch were saying the British have to give up Singapore. Canning was unsure of the exact, this is where Fort Canning, the name comes from. Huh? Canning, who was one of the major people in power, uh, was unsure of the exact circumstances because of all the mess that was happening. And so essentially in 1823, they decided to just settle things straightforwardly. And they said, let's create clear spheres of influence in the region. So the Dutch realized that Singapore was growing much faster. This was already four years since they had established a port, and they pressed for an exchange in which they would abandon their claims north of the Strait of Malacca and the Indian colonies in exchange for a confirmation of their claims south of the Strait, including Vancouver. So they got Vancouver in return for Singapore. Yeah, how does this make you feel, Ben, that, you know, Singapore's history is so much more muddled and complex than what our history books tend to tell us in, in in the schools that we went through. Personally, I didn't really understand like what the entire thing was. To me, it's just a bunch of words. But then, you know, like being in finance now, being a bit of a deal maker, having sourcing deals, talking about deals, negotiating deals, and global deals across the world, you kind of understand the, the nuances that people actually have in this point of time. You know, the relationships between people and how, you know, the small things actually matter. How does, you know, the personal correspond to the corporate, meaning like the entire organization of the British East India Company and how does that relate to the British Empire in total? So I think that's that's, that's very interesting because I, on a personal basis, it, it just tells me that no matter how small I am, you know, I can just be, I don't have to be raffles, right? I can be the Fakwa. I can just be a major, you know, I can just be like this assistant, but I can make a huge difference in Singapore's history. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I, I really appreciate that. I think with everything that we know about our history, a lot of it is personality driven. And we like to, it's called the halo effect, where we like to put a halo on someone and say like, just because they did one good thing, then everything else that they did is kind of forgivable, right? The ends justify the means uh, and, and whatnot. But I think going back to something you said very early on, people are imperfect. And so we need to be very clear what are we celebrating when we celebrate certain people and certain personalities. Because if we don't fully appreciate who they were, we can potentially make the same mistakes, right? Like what if people were to try to emulate raffles and they were to play local powers against themselves again. That's not a future I want to be a part of where, you know, you deceive and you use malicious tactics as a way to, to secure power. I don't think that's something I want to support. Agreed, and agree. yes. So just to recap, right? So far, what we've seen is that raffles was born. He started off early on in the British East India Company. He went to Java where he started some of his early practices of both negative and positive behavior in power. He was sent back to England because uh, of financial impropriety and poor financial performance. Uh, and then he was sent to Ben Coolen almost like a punishment position mm -hmm. right? <laughs> uh, in the backwaters. Yeah. And that was where 
once he heard from Farquhar about Singapore, he was like, hey, let me be a part of this. I'll sail down and I'll help secure the rights for the British to come into Singapore, even though the British powers told him, don't interfere because we're already in a precarious position with the Dutch. He did it nonetheless. He really, and he did it in a, in a deceitful way. And, and then after that, he sailed back. Right to Ben Coolen, he was like, "All right, like I'm done." <laughs> and Farquhar kind of had to deal with the the fallout, and and eventually the, uh, you know, there was the Anglo-Dutch treaty. So, so th- this is this sets the stage for the question: What did Raffles actually do for Singapore? <laughs> right, like beyond setting everything up, was he involved? And the answer is yes. So. What happened was that Raffles was pleased with the fact that Singapore had grown exponentially in such a short period. The colony was a bustling hub of trade and economic activity. But he felt, Raffles felt, that Farqua, who was a resident of Singapore, his administration was deemed unsatisfactory because he saw that merchants were able to encroach on government areas. He saw vices such as gambling. Uh, and, you know, one of the key things that he hated, slave trade, was still there. So he said, this is not good. He came back and he said, I'm going to take over again. And he instituted new policies. Uh, he set up a committee held by, headed by the colony's engineer, Philip Jackson, to drop a plan that is either known as the Jackson Plan or the Rafflestown Plan, based on instructions. Yeah, sounds like you are so what he did, <laughs> this is early, early science of town planning, right? And what he did was that he racially segregated Singapore. And he basically gave the best land to the Europeans because for obvious reasons, right? He was like, we are the ones in power. We deserve the best land. This plan, even though racial in nature, was considered remarkably scientific <laughs> during the time, right? And it was it, it was during all of this uh, implementation of the town plan and whatnot that Farqua and Raffles had major arguments. Farqua was considered by Raffles unfit for the position of resident. And so Raffles took direct control and with a heavy hand. And, you know, this Jackson Town plan cost a massive sum of $50,000 and drained Singapore's carefully accumulated savings within a year. Yeah, yeah. So again, connecting the dots, right? What is one of Singapore's most uh, foundational values today, right? It's prudence and the maintenance of a very strong agreed, reserve. Agreed. And then you look at this, you look at this, you look at what Raffles did. He drained it, absolutely, for a vanity project. Is that something that we want to celebrate, right? <laughs> so so I think that these are these are starting signs of the true nature of Raffles, right? In 1823, he instituted a code of settlement, which was then followed by laws regarding freedom of trade. So these were some of the stuff that he did to actually make Singapore into a bustling merchant port. Uh, he created a registration system for all land. Uh, he repossessed land by the government if the land remained unregistered. And he basically asserted the power of the British government that you know superseded any kind of uh, land that was previously owned by the Sultan. So all of this came under the purview of the British. He set up a police force and a magistrate uh, on British principles. So this is also start the starting of how Commonwealth values started coming into Singapore. He tr- transformed Singapore from just an outpost, from a merchant port, into a city. So I think I think this is where it's a bit difficult for me because you know there are benefits he did 
modernized things. But again, at what cost and what was the side effects of some of these things, right? And, and you know, you, going back to something that you said, Ben, that I really thought was, was very important was that Farquhar treated the land as borrowed, right? That the British were there on someone else's mm. permission and that they were there to, you know, profit on a win-win yes. basis. Uh, so he saw it as a Malay pot that belonged to Malay rulers. Raffles saw Singapore as a British pot. And so Farquhar insisted on abiding by the terms of the treaty signed by Sultan Hussein and Temengong way back in 1819. But Raffles was like, nope, we're going to move ahead in the direction that's the best for the British and for me, right, for my power. And so when Raffles started began, beginning to sell land, uh, which Farquhar said he had no authority to do so, uh, Raffles interpreted this as another in, instance of Farquhar's opposition. And he started making efforts to Calcutta, which was, you know, the base of, of the British uh, East India Company for that region. And he, he asked him to send a replacement for Farquhar. But again, we re- we are reminded that not many people like Raffles. So they kind of yeah. ignored him. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so it's where uh, he started to get really frustrated. Eventually, what happened was that he started thinking about retirement and Calcutta appointed this man called John Crawford to take over as a new resident of Singapore. We find ourselves more vibing, you know, vibing more Farquhar than Raffles. I think we judge the past through modern values. And I think to some extent that is fair. We should look at the best standards and ask ourselves, did the past meet those standards? But I also agree with something you said earlier, which is that there are a lot of nuances and a lot of complexities. And so the time back then, it was the norm to do some of these things. And so Raffles was just really, in some ways, a person of the time. And Farquhar maybe was a person of the future. His values weren't celebrated to the extent that they probably should be. Raffles did a lot for Singapore. Two things that he did, actually, that I thought were pretty cool. The first was that he did want to set up a Malay college in Singapore to form an institution of higher learning to educate the sons of the Malay chiefs, uh, really to start to help them understand the East India Company, to make them more British-friendly. And so he actually set up a school on Bras Basar Road that was first called the Singapore Free School, then eventually you know, went through many names, including Singapore Institution. And then finally, it was called Raffles Institution. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, this brings it back to my junior college, which I think about. Actually, I wanted to make a joke here. Uh, I was just talking to my wife just now. Uh, then she was like joking that... I don't really hear this song before, but then, you know, the, the Raffles Institution anthem can actually be sung in a Barney too. When Stanford Raffles held the torch that cast Promethean flame, we faced the challenge of the day to give our school a name. <laughs> <laughs> I hope if anyone who is an alumni of Raffles Institution is listening to this, uh, you start singing that song that way. <laughs> the other cool thing that he did uh, was he set up the Singapore Library, which is now known as the National Library. And I personally... I'm a huge fan of the National Library. I think it's one of the best things that Singapore did. He left Singapore on 9 June 1823 uh, when he felt that his work was finished and he basically stopped over in Batavia to visit his old home and adversary, Van der Capellen. Uh, And then he went to Ben Coolen, but that was where he actually lost his daughter. And then finally... You know, that the whole family went back to England where he retired. That kind of brings us to the last part about Raffles, which is his late days and his death. It, it does, uh, you know, cast a, a light that, 
life is finite in some ways. You know, we're not going to be here forever. Upon arrival in England in, in poor health, uh, we had actually had uh, Stanford Raffles and Lady Raffles. And they were in Schottenheim and until September 1824. And he was just entertaining uh, guests in his London and in his home in London. And yeah, he made plans to stand for Parliament, but I think his, his ambition was never realised. They had a war of words with Farquhar, who also arrived in the city at the same time, in front of the core directors of the EIC regarding Singapore. And despite raising several severe charges against Raffles, I think Farquhar was unable to ultimately discredit him. And he was denied a chance to be restored to Singapore, but was given military promotion instead of Farquhar. With this, Singapore matters settled, uh, Raffles turned to his other great interests, and these were botany and uh, zoology. So he was a founder in 1825 and the first president elected April 1826 of the Zoological Society of London and London Zoo. And last year, for some of you who actually went uh, for the National Museum, where they actually showcased uh, his drawings and I think uh, his, his stuff regarding zoology and botany. And I thought it was pretty interesting. Different side of his character that we don't really see, right? And meanwhile, he was called to pay over £22,000 sterling for losses incurred during his administration. But before the, the issue was resolved, he was really much too ill. And and then we get to his death. Yes, uh, he died at Highwood house in Mill Hill in North London on his 45th birthday on 5th of July 1826 of apoplexy and his estate amounted to around 10,000 sterling pounds uh, which was paid to the company to cover his outstanding debt and because of his anti-slavery position which I, I think uh, we've already mentioned quite a few times he was refused a uh, burial inside the local parish church which yeah I, I at a point of time this, this is a really controversial issue and by the vicar uh, Theodore Williams whose family had actually made his money in Jamaica in a slave trade. And when the church was extended in the 1920s, his tomb was incorporated into the body of the building and a square floor tablet with inscription marked spot. Following his premature death, his widow, Sophia Raffles, then wrote a best-selling biography of a late husband. He ended not on a great note, right? Like, he came back and thought that he was he was starting strong. He he won his squabble against Farquhar. He was the founder and president of, you know, the Zoological Societies and the Zoo. But then British yep. India Company was still very unhappy with him about some of the damage that he caused in, in the region. And so for all the losses that he incurred in Java and Ben Coolen and in Singapore, uh, they were like, you got to pay up, right? And so... Raffles kind of died in a poor way, and the fact that he couldn't even get buried in a proper way, it, it does make, make me a bit sad, but more on a human level, right? I think everyone should have a decency of, of burial, but this, this kind of does make me sad. Farquhar, on the other hand, he did not have a great legacy until recently. Yeah, this is a trudeau from history, right? He was erased completely, right? I want to do a full episode about Farquhar in the future. But, you know, there were landmarks in Singapore like Farquhar Street, Mount Farquhar, and Farquhar Strait. But all of these were disappeared. A lot of this was done because of Raffles, because of Sophia Raffles, uh, his widow who basically wrote books to, like, diminish Farquhar and elevate Raffles. Uh, it was done because they needed... Uh, people to talk about Pax Britannia and, and, and about the primacy of British rule and Raffles was an easy figure to, to talk about because not many people knew about what was happening in the region and so they could they elevate him. And then finally, when we talk about the legitimacy of Singapore's independence, we talk about the legitimacy of the, the, the government that exists today, they needed transfer of power from the British to Singapore and that legitimized our government of today post-independence. And for that to happen, then you need to believe the legitimacy of the British government that gave you that power. And so for that to happen, you need to recognize the legitimacy of Raffles, the founder of Singapore, despite everything 
it is complex and complicated. Agree, agree. <laughs> and this brings me to a point as well, you know, like Lee Kuan Yew, you know, credited, I, I think that like without Lee Kuan Yew, Singapore is not going to be where it is today. But, you know, we, we forget there's Go King Sui as well. Go King Sui was in a way, in many ways, the person who established the armed forces, built the Ministry of Finance, and did several many things which uh, contributed to Singapore's success. But yet, you know, like in a way, he's not as spoken of. And perhaps there, there is... That's part of history, right? I don't know. Like, uh, part of empires, the, the second-hand right-hand man is always, like, forgotten in that way. Yeah, I mean, the strong men tend to win. And so I would hope for a future of Singapore's narrative that celebrates a wider group of people and that celebrates different kinds of contributions, even where, you know, if the person lost or if the person, you know, entered into, into a debate, entered into uh, an argument and they lost, but they still value added to what it yes. means to be Singaporean. They still value added to the narrative. I think that's still important for us to appreciate because that adds to the whole. I think we need to remember that a lot of these things, they are not, if, if Raffles just had his way altogether, I think we'd be in a very different kind yeah, of world too. Ben, I, I, you know, this is definitely one of the longer episodes we recorded. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. I felt like I learned a yeah, lot. Yeah, me too. I, I definitely learned a lot. Like this is something new about Singapore's history that, yeah, definitely never really heard before. You know, on that note, I hope our listeners, this was useful for you. If you have other topics that you want to talk about, please do let us know. And if you want to find out more about Kenobi, you know, check out the details in the show notes. I've put some links there so that you can go find out about the great work that Ben is yes. doing. 